We'll open your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. The Word of God says this in Titus chapter 1 verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict I've titled our morning's message, The Importance of Godly Shepherds. The Importance of Godly Shepherds. It is with these words that Paul transitions from his introduction, which we've looked at at the opening four verses of Titus, to the body of this letter, to Titus, his child and the faith, and a very trusted, um, credible gospel partner who is Titus. As we've mentioned, Titus um, is on the island of Crete, with a very important task to establish the churches there on the island of Crete. Paul had visited Crete on a couple of occasions. One of them was very brief before his first Roman imprisonment in Acts chapter 27, but he didn't have an opportunity at that time to really explore the island. And he visited Crete a second time after his first Roman imprisonment. And we get that, that's implied here in chapter 1 and verse 5. But Paul didn't stay very long. He didn't stay very long for whatever reason. And yet he left a very trusted partner in the gospel, Titus, a young disciple on the island of Crete. And we've talked about the island of Crete, if you remember. It was a very exciting place for gospel ministry, but a very, very challenging one. It had a very long history of turmoil and conflict as people groups fought for control of the island over the centuries. It was a very ethnically diverse place, sort of like a melting pot, kind of like Los Angeles, of mixed people groups, um, including by this time that Paul writes a very strong Jewish influence. And we're going to see that later on in the contents of the letter, that there was a strong Jewish influence. But most importantly, the, the place was famous for its wickedness and its corruption. It was a godless place where wickedness abounded. And yet, we've been reminded... And we're reminded every single day of our lives, aren't we? That God is a loving, merciful God. And where there is a place where sinners exist, God wants to be glorified as we share and preach the gospel to people so that they might come to know Jesus Christ. He wants people in, in places where wickedness abounds to display the gospel so that His church manifests something of His glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, because of the wickedness on the island of Crete, all the more reason for Paul's strong instructions beginning in chapter 1, verse 5, to Titus. Paul says to Titus, in the midst of this wicked context, this is why I've left you there, so that you would set in order what remains. Something is missing. It's incomplete. It's out of place. Things are not as they should be, Titus. You need to set in order what remains, he says in verse 5. The things that are missing or lacking or deficient. And what is lacking is evident from the contents of the letter. 
In chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, we're going to see in these next three Sundays that what was lacking in these churches is that these churches needed to have godly qualified leaders called elders in the various cities. In chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, the church needed to be protected from false teachers. And that's why it was, it was important for there to be competent, gifted elders to defend the church from the propagation and promotion of false teaching. In chapter 2, the various groups in the church are, are addressed and exhorted to invest into one another in light of the grace of Christ in their lives. And we're going to see that in a series in chapter 2 of Titus. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, we see that the whole church must have a solid gospel witness before the government and before um, the world. And in chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, the church needed to learn how to deal with dissension and division so that the churches would be unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, there are other things, beloved, that the churches need, but these are very, very specific to the, church, to the churches on the island of Crete that needed to be established in these different areas. And so this morning, we begin to see the first crucial thing that was missing in these churches. At the top of this list is the importance of godly leadership. Godly leadership that Titus needed to establish. Establish. I'm only 41 years old. Maybe I look a lot older. feel a lot older. but. And admittedly, beloved, I have a lot to learn as a young man. still consider myself a young man at the age of 41. But I can tell you this, that in 34 years of being exposed to Christian churches, especially conservative churches, as I grew up and then as a teenager and as a young man, and then traveling for seven years um, to different states of this country, and ministering alongside of churches and working with pastors in churches and then traveling to other countries of the world, um, stricken by poverty. The single greatest issue confronting churches um, that I can bear witness to and the burden of many churches that I interacted with was the lack of faithful, godly shepherds in these churches. Without, that's, that's the primary, primary deficiency. And while not all problems existed in these churches that I interact with, interacted with because of, of leadership, in many of these churches there were leadership issues in some way, shape, or form that maybe contributed or exacerbated the issues that were going on in those churches. Leaders were put in places of leadership um, that really were not qualified or godly men to be leading in many ways. They were either corrupt, unholy men uh, leading and that is actually one of the issues that uh, Paul is going to address in chapter 1, verse 16. False teachers who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, he says in verse 16, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Men who say things with their mouths, but they live godless lives, unholy lives. In many of these churches, that, those, were, those were issues that needed to be confronted. In other churches, leadership was just incompetent. And what I mean by that is that they weren't called or, or gifted to shepherd the body of Christ. In other churches, leadership was divided. There was dissension and factions which existed within the leadership. And how could they be an example to or call the flock to be unified if they themselves were not unified? They were divided. Men driven by prag for pragmatic reasons focusing in some of these churches on what worked rather than what grew people and discipleship and what was biblically faithful. 
Leadership was driven by political um, agendas in the church even. Yes, politics exist in the church as well. Where there are men who are vying for power, trying to up one another, one-up one another. Not focused upon the, the success of one another or the growth of the people, but, but trying to, to advance their own agenda. And in some other churches, there were genuinely godly men in leadership. Genuinely godly men in leadership who were either not called, not gifted, or just lacked the desire to serve as leaders. And they were just in the wrong place. The result in most of these cases, beloved, and the tears that I saw many pastors shed um, was that their church was left vulnerable and susceptible to false teaching. The churches were were prone to division and schism, and the members experienced stunted growth. There wasn't Christ-exalting growth in many people because of these issues in leadership. All of these things, beloved, highlight the, the importance of godly qualified leadership and how important that is. Because truly, as leadership goes, listen to me, as leadership goes, so does the church. As leadership goes, so does the church. And again, well, it's not always the case that that all problems in the church exist because of leadership. Mark this, when God works in His holy word, and God has worked in church history, He works through godly shepherds so that even when there are tough times and there are issues and there are trials and afflictions, those godly shepherds are prepared to lead the church by the grace of God in truth and in love. God works through means, His Word, His Spirit, and through qualified godly men in the church. This is always the way that it has been. Now, with all this talk about leaders and leadership, we have to clarify who is to lead the church. And I think Titus tells us here in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says that Titus is to appoint who? Elders. Elders in every city as I directed you. Leaders in the church are called elders. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, they're called overseers. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders, he uses three different terms for these leaders, elders, overseers, and shepherds, in the verb form that they are to shepherd the flock of God. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, all three terms, elders, pastors, and overseers, appear in different forms, but all of them are used synonymously and used interchangeably for the same office of those who are to lead in the church. Elders, pastors, overseers are the leaders in God's church. If you were to put all three together, then you could put it this way. In the words of one pastor, elders are pastors who oversee the church. And the predominant overarching responsibility of the leader of God's church is to shepherd the church of God. To shepherd the church of God. In fact, the term pastor refers to a shepherd or in the verb form to shepherding. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul exhorts the elders to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, he says. This is your function, elders. Shepherd God's church. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, Peter exhorts the elders there to shepherd the flock among you. What does the shepherding involve then? Well, I think it involves at least five things. It involves knowing the sheep. Doesn't a shepherd know his sheep? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
In the same way we who are shepherds imitate the great shepherd and we ought to get to know the sheep, spending time with the sheep, cultivating relationships with the sheep as Jesus did. So shepherds know the sheep. Shepherds feed the sheep by means of the word of God. We feed the sheep healthy doctrine, healthy teaching, so that healthy, as you apply the word of God, you, you, you flesh out healthy living in your life. Shepherds lead the sheep, giving them direction through the word of God, pointing them to Jesus Christ and to the gospel and to the word of God. We lead you, we provide direction in your life by means of Scripture. Shepherds protect the sheep, as we're going to see even in the next passage in a few weeks, from harm, from things that may arise within and, and come in from without, false teaching or division or dissension or factions. Shepherds are to protect the sheep. And finally, listen, shepherds plead for the sheep. Shepherds know the sheep, feed the sheep, lead the sheep, protect the sheep. Shepherds are pleading for the sheep before the Heavenly Father. This is where the ministry of the Word and prayer comes in. Privately, publicly, in groups, shepherds are to be leading and spearheading the efforts to be investing into the sheep and to be praying with the sheep. So those are, that's what shepherding involves, knowing, leading, feeding, protecting, and pleading for the sheep. In this way, shepherds provide shepherding oversight for God's church. And may we never forget that, that the church belongs to God. Amen? The church belongs to God. That's not every, any man's saying. That's what Scripture says. God, through the blood of His Son, purchased the church for, his own, for Himself. Though no church belongs to any team of elders, but to Jesus. That was the single greatest thing that I kept emphasizing to elders that I would speak to in other churches. You realize, ultimately, at the end of the day, your sufficiency is Jesus. He is the great shepherd. He is the head of the church. You need to come before Him. You are just an under-shepherd. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. And oh, beloved, how I marvel, how I marvel that he does not need me to shepherd his church. He does not need anyone. Jesus is perfectly capable of caring for those in his own church. He is mighty to save and mighty to sustain his people. He doesn't need anyone. And yet in his amazing grace, Jesus has, has, has called elders to participate in this beautiful, serious, and exhilarating task of shepherding his people. Who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate? It's only by the grace of God that we're able to do that. Amen, elders? It's only by the grace of God. It is with this understanding of the importance of godly leaders that Titus was to appoint elders that the churches would be grounded, stable, strong, and healthy. And the focus of verses 6 through 9 really becomes the qualifications of the men who are to lead in the church. Now, I want to get into these qualifications of godly, faithful shepherds in the next couple of Sundays. But before that, I want to, I really feel like we need to begin by answering two important, crucial questions this morning. Okay? They are crucial questions that we need to answer before we look at the qualifications of elders, because this is a huge issue in churches. And so the two questions that I want to answer for us are these. First of all, what are some wrong reasons why men either pursue or are appointed to leadership? What are some wrong reasons why they either pursue or are appointed to leadership in the church? 
Secondly, what are some, some initial guidelines for the appointment of leaders? What are some initial guidelines? So first of all, what are some wrong reasons why men pursue or are appointed to leadership? These are not exhaustive. But they are a sampling of some of the reasons I have come across and I had conversations with others over the years and worked with churches for men either pursuing leadership or being appointed as elders that I have seen or come across. First of all, personality. Personality. Men are appointed to lead because of a winsome personality. Maybe there are individuals who are very dynamic They know how to move people. They know how to get the buy-in of people. Perhaps uh, the guy is a a people's favorite in the church for good reasons. He's a vivacious person, a very nice guy, uh, an enjoyable person to be around. Nothing good, nothing wrong with having a good personality if God has given a man that. But ultimately, that's not what the focus becomes in this passage, is it? The man's personality. I remember a few years ago hearing of of a pastor who pastored for about 10 or 11 years, and he was a dynamic personality, a great preacher. And it turned out that he had been having an affair for 13 years, even before he had gone on, come on as a full-time pastor. And so the people who brought him in hadn't, obviously they were deceived and he deceived them, but how sad that ultimately it wasn't his character, the reason why he was in that pulpit, um, It was because of personality and many other reasons. Power. Power is another reason. Maybe this person is an influential person in the church. Maybe a very influential person in the the community. You know, in our society, money talks. So even in the church, beloved, that in our sin, we can even uh, allow people in leadership because of the fact that, hey, we don't want them to leave. This guy has to be an elder. Because if we don't make him an elder, because he really wants to be an elder, and he ends up leaving the church, then guess what goes with him? A lot of money. And maybe a lot of other people. He's a very influential guy who's very powerful. I came across churches who had men like this who were put in leadership because they wanted influence. They wanted to say, have a say in the, in the church and have control. They were on, on power trips. I remember a, a pastor friend of mine talking to me about the fact that when he, he went to um, Chicago to pastor a church there, on one occasion, one of the elders, there was already beginning issues in the church, and he's preaching his heart out. And, and after the, 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 um, the, the sermon, one of the elders came up to him, this elder who was pushing back on biblical issues, clearly delineated cl- biblical issues, and he said to him, hey, I want you to know that whatever you, whatever you have to say, you can say up there. And he was pointing behind the pulpit. You can say whatever you want behind the pulpit. But down here, we're the ones that call the shots. With those words, beloved. With those words. There are people like that in churches. Elders who are on power trips who don't care about what the Word of God says. They just want to be in control. And so we have to be careful with that in our churches. Politics play another... another, um, uh, uh, Men are appointed uh, for reasons of... Political reasons, we might call them. Yes, that happens in the church. There may be special interest groups in the church, if you want to put it that way, who push for a guy and his agenda... Maybe people who want things a certain way, so they appoint men who are going to do what they, what they want them to do. So appointing elders almost becomes like a, a campaign, a political campaign to push forward your candidate who is going to push forward your ideas in the church. There are churches who play that game. 
Maybe they wouldn't think of it as political, but that's exactly what it is, beloved. Seniority plays a role here. Seniority, men who are appointed who have been around a long time. Hey, this is, the, this is their church. They're part of the foundation of this church. And who better, after all, says people, uh, to lead the church than those who have been around a long time, who are familiar with the traditions of the church, who know how the church should be run and how things, should, things work. And rather than discerning whether a man is a spiritual leader, they go after these individuals or put them forward because of the fact that they have seniority. They've been around a long, long time and they need to be elders. Loyalty is another reason. Loyalty. Men who are appointed because they are loyal to the head guy or loyal to the other elders and the elders know it in sort of an unhealthy kind of loyalty. And so there are churches who put forward guys uh, as elders because of the fact that they knew that these guys would support the agenda of the elders irrespective of what the Word of God said. But that is not to say that if someone is being evaluated or assessed and they're contradicting scripture and going against the direction of the church, they should still be put forward. That's not to say that, but this is such sort of an unhealthy loyalty that you can put somebody forward simply because they're loyal to, to you as the head pastor. Success. Success is another one. He's a great businessman and he's a great moneymaker, a great administrator. And, and if he can just run the church the way that he runs his business... And the way that he administrates, he should apply that to the church, then we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. You can make the case that ultimately, all principles, business principles, find their source, beloved, in the Bible. But that is not to say that the church should be, should be run like a business. You're comparing apples and oranges here. While some of those gifts and, and abilities may be useful in the context of the church, it is not equal to the church is a business that must be run like a corporation. We have to be careful with that. The last two are hard ones. Because there were godly men in positions of leadership. Godly, genuinely godly men who did not have the sense of call to be an elder, who did not have the desire to be a shepherd, who were not gifted to teach, and yet they were put or coerced into positions of leadership as, as elders. I remember the wonderful testimony of a man like that who came in and shared in a meeting uh, with the elders. He says, look, I've been an elder for about 10 years now, and I have just come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the study of the Word of God and conversations that had been had with that elder group that I am not an elder. And you know what? I am okay with that, he said. I'm okay with that. I am not gifted to be an elder. I don't have to feel that com compelling call to be an elder. I was coerced into doing this because of the head pastor. And it was a joyful time. And he stepped down from being an elder. And he made a lateral move over to be a deacon. Because he realized that he was gifted and, and called to be a deacon instead. And one of the funniest things about that conversation was that at one point he said, Even my wife, when I shared this with her, she told me, What took you so long? What took you so long? All these years I've known that. Which begs the question, why didn't she tell him, right? What took you so long? Godly man who was not an elder. Not called, not gifted. Did not desire to be an elder. He didn't even want... He loved the Word of God, but didn't desire to teach. Maybe the guy also, lastly, is a good teacher. 
Good teachers are put forward as elders. And yet the problem is, is that many, in many cases that there was a confusing of the gift of teaching with automatically someone being pronounced as elder material. Think about this. Ultimately, even when a person, a man is gifted, the gift of teaching itself is for the equipping of the saints, for the edification of the saints, for the, for the benefit of the saints so that the people would become like Jesus. So a man could be a good teacher, but the question is, does he love the people? Does he have a shepherd's heart so that he wants to teach, so that he builds people up in Christ Jesus, so that he loves them with the truth and in love. Now listen, beloved, we know that some of these qualities may certainly be part of the makeup of an elder, such as success in business may be very useful in the context of the church if the man is godly and qualified, such as influence, he's an influential man, maybe he's a a good teacher of the word of God and he's a a prayer warrior, so he's going to have influence and that's how he uses his influence to, to, uh, to lead people and direct people. That could be useful for an, as an elder, of course. Experience can be very useful for elders. They're, they're not wet behind the ears, but they have life experience. That is absolutely valuable as an elder as well. They have a, a healthy sense of loyalty. They know how to work in a team setting with other men. That is very, very valuable. Maybe they're gifted in teaching. That is very valuable as well. But ultimately, what Titus tells us is that that what is most important is who the man is in his character more than in his experiences, abilities, even gifting. Who is he in his character is what matters most. That is what's going to become the focus. Now, the second question we want to answer this morning is this. What are some initial guidelines for the appointment of elders? What are some initial guidelines for the appointment of elders in the church? Okay? And I want you to look at verse 5. First of all, I want to give you five of these, or six of these, by the way, and there are more, but we'll work through some of those later on in different ways. First of all, I want you to notice that identifying elders is to be deliberate. Is to be deliberate. Look at verse 5. He says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and listen to this, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Titus is to appoint elders in every city. To appoint means to, to put in charge, to place in an office or in an official role. And implicit here is intentionality. And proactivity in assessing and evaluating and identifying elders, beloved, because not everyone is called. Not everyone is character qualified. Not everyone is competent. And by competence, I mean gifted to be an elder. And so Titus, in appointing elders, must look for the right men. Whatever the process may have been that he utilized, because there's flexibility in the process or methodology of that appointment of selecting elders, Titus needed to, to, to evaluate and assess so that he landed in, uh, under the direction of the Spirit of God and the Word of God uh, to appoint the right kinds of men. And notice it says in verse 5, appoint elders in every city. In each locale, there needed to be men identified and, and, appoint, and appointed. There wasn't a, a seminary back then, right? In the same way that we have them today, where the, the churches on the island of Crete could draw from these, these seminaries, Right? What they did is they raised men from within the churches the way that it should be. 
I'm so grateful and thankful for my seminary. I wouldn't change my seminary experience for the world. But I'm going to tell you something right now. The seminary did not teach me and train me to become a shepherd. I learned that in the church. The church. Godly men and older brothers, spiritually speaking, that came alongside of me and knocked me across the head and gave me a kick in the rear from time to time, teaching me and showing me and modeling for me what it meant to be a shepherd. The church is the one that is to raise leaders from within. And this takes intentionality, familiarity with men, time spent, prayerful evaluation for Titus and the, and the churches as well. I mean, think of Moses in Scripture. Moses training up and grooming Joshua early on in the, in the history of the nation of Israel and then passing on the baton to Joshua. Think about Elijah passing the baton to Elisha. In the times of spiritual decadence, in the, during the divided kingdom. Think of Jesus, our Lord Jesus, the perfect example of reproducing himself into men at a high capacity and high level. Uh, investing himself into 12 men that he chose and called to himself to be with him. And he trained them and taught them and they watched his example of love and compassion and confronting the true uh, error and opposition. They watched him. Think of Paul. A few weeks ago, we, we talked from, uh, looked at Colossians chapter 4 and all of Paul's gospel partners and men that he invested himself into. Timothy and Titus and Epaphroditus and Epaphras and Tychicus and all of these individuals that Paul intend, invested into with intentionality, beloved. Why is it that Paul could, could leave his, his, his uh, spiritual son, Titus, in such a challenging place on the island of Crete? Because he invested into him intentionally and trusted in him that he was capable under the Spirit of God and the grace of God to do what he called him to do. This is why one of the primary tasks of elders on the forefront, is that we are to be discipling and raising men by means of the Word of God, prayer, and relationship. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 says that the things that you have learned, Paul says to Timothy, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Four generations, Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, faithful men to other faithful men. And so it keeps going and going and going as the baton is passed. That's what elders lead the charge in, in, in doing in the context of the church. And don't sell yourself short as a congregation. You as a church, this may surprise you, you as a church are to be on the forefront of raising up future leaders. Think about that. How beautiful that is. In Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, it was the church at Antioch who affirms the call of the Holy Spirit and lays hands on Barnabas and Paul for the work of the ministry. The church at Antioch did that. Obviously with the elders on the forefront and apostles. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles and the church put forward men who in seed form were to become the first deacons in the church. The church was involved in that. So the church and elders participate in raising potential leaders, beloved, with intentionality and purposefulness. Second, Elder leadership is to be plural. Elder leadership is to be plural. Look at verse 5. He says, appoint elders, plural, in every city as I directed you. Titus is to ensure that there is a plurality of leaders in every church. When you think about the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, when the church was dealing with Gentile inclusion, the church there had one leader amongst leaders, James 
who was the, the Lord's half-brother, but you had a group of elders who heard Peter's testimony concerning Gentile inclusion, and they assessed the situation together as a plurality of leaders. Yes, James became the spokesman and the leader amongst leaders, if you will, but there was equality across the board. And they assessed that together. In Acts chapter 20, Paul addresses the Ephesian elders, plural, a group of men who were to shepherd the church in that context. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter exhorts the elders, plural, to shepherd the church of God. The pattern of effective leadership then in the church, beloved, is not a a one-man show. A CEO of a corporation running the machine of the church. A president with advisors or board members. That is not the pattern of effective leadership according to God's word in the church. But a plurality of godly, qualified, competent men shepherding the church under the chief shepherd. That is the pattern in the church. Again, there is such a thing as leader amongst leaders. We have evidences of this, as we will see in future sermons, of leaders amongst leaders. But this does not mean that one man makes all of the decisions and one man is not accountable to a group of other godly, competent men for input so that they all move in one direction together. The isolated man is a martyr, isn't he? He's a martyr. This is why one of the things that we tell um, uh, interns here at this church, and I've said it to a number of interns in the past and potentially into the, in the present. If you are going to be an intern here at CBC, you're going to get opportunities because you want to go into full-time ministry as a seminary guy to preach and to teach. You need to learn to do that. You need to learn to feed the flock well. We're going to give you some opportunities and some assessment and some feedback. But secondly, you also need to cultivate a heart of a shepherd. Learn to care and love for people because it doesn't matter how much you wax eloquent. If you don't love the people, it doesn't matter. But thirdly, listen to this. I tell them you need to learn to work with other men in a team, in a plurality of leaders. Why? Because most of the guys that I know even wonderful guys that I love, went and split churches because they didn't know how to work with other men. It wasn't because the church didn't want to hear expository preaching. It was because of the fact that they didn't know how to work in partnership with other men. They didn't know how to defer to other men. They said a certain thing, and it was their way or the highway. And that was the end of that and the end of him at the church. You need to learn to work within the plurality of leaders. Think of Moses. When you're the great leader, when you think of Moses, maybe you think of the dominant personality of Moses, the the power of persuasion in this man, the, the zeal of this man. But you know what made Moses great? He knew how to work with a team of people. He was a man who was humble and meek, and that is what made him great. Do you remember in, in Exodus chapter 18 when Jethro, his father-in-law, comes to him? And he says, Moses, you cannot continue this way of ministry. I mean, you cannot continue to have tens and tens of people coming to you with, with the, with the um, instruction or with the problems, and you're the only one dealing with the issues. You're surely going to wear yourself out. So what did Moses do? He came alongside and appointed other men, and other men helped him carry the load, right? He was able to delegate to other people as well. So that is the pattern, beloved. A plurality of leaders, thirdly, Thirdly, not only is leadership to be deliberate and is to be plural, but elder leadership is to be male leadership. Male leadership. The pronoun 
here in verse 6, if any man is a masculine pronoun, he is to be also a one-woman man. In verse 6, that means he is to be a male. Husband of one wife, a one-woman man. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, he is to be a one-woman man. And also, Paul links leading a church to leading a family, so that just as men lead in, in marriage and parenting, they are called to lead in the church as well. This has nothing to do with inferiority. This has nothing to do with incompetence on the part of women who are just as gifted as men, in many ways, in other ways, more gifted than men. It has to do with God's design. How God has set forth this order in the church where there's equality but difference in function. So men, qualified godly men, are to be leading the church. The office of an elder, an overseer, a pastor is not for women. It is for godly qualified men. Fourth, elder leadership is according to desire. It is according to desire. You know, there are a lot of godly men in the church who may not sense a call or have a desire to, to serve as elders. Maybe they are not gifted to teach or just enjoy serving in other capacities. But if you're going to assess a man for the office of elder, he must have a desire. First Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says this, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, listen to this, it is a fine work he desires to do. That word desire there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 is this intense desire, this internal longing and compelling passion for the office. 1 Peter chapter 5 says that, uh, 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 that elders are to shepherd the flock of God among you. Listen to this, not under compulsion, which means from constraint or because he, he's being forced to either by others or imposing this upon himself, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. That is according to desire, because he wants to, according to the will of God. Because he knows God has called him to the work. This doesn't mean that if a man desires the, the office of overseer, then he's automatically qualified. But what it does mean, in the least, is that desiring the work is a good start, but then comes the assessment of the qualifications which follow. And you know why desire is so important, beloved? And the elders can say a hearty amen to this, or even past elders. Elder work is hard work. If you don't have a desire and a passion and a sense of call from the great chief shepherd to do what you are doing as an elder, it is oftentimes discouraging, beloved. It is depressing at times. It is difficult work. It is grueling work because sheep bite Not hard bites, okay, but little bites. Little nibbles, okay, little nibbles. But listen, true elders who are called by the Lord to shepherd still love you and want the work. And they find joy in the work. And, they, and it's exhilarating to see when you grow in Jesus when you turn from your sin and you, you put on Christ-likeness in your life, what a treasure that is. And I wouldn't exchange it as, a, as an elder for the world. This is exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life by the grace of God. Elders desire the work. Or even if there's discouragement or whatever, you still desire the work. 
As a side note, I mean, this is why when we're assessing elders, I'm always suspect of potential candidates who are wanting to just talk about, well, how much work is it going to be? And they're fixated on, I don't want, to, I don't want the, there to be too much work because it's inconvenient. My, my family is going to get neglected. I'm going to be detracted away from the things that I want to do. In my, you know what? Forget it. Forget it. Yes, you need to learn to juggle those other things as well, but you need to have a desire to be an elder. It's going to be work, but it's joyful and exhilarating work. Fifth, elder leadership is affirmed leadership. It is affirmed leadership. And what I mean by that is that we are only affirming in a man's life and appointing him as an elder what we already see in his life. We are affirming him to a ministry that he's already carrying out by the testimony of his life. First Timothy chapter three says, if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. That word aspires in first Timothy chapter three refers to, to an internal stretching forth or grasping of something. And it manifests itself outwardly where it's compelling you to action because you're so moved in your heart with a sense of calling to invest yourself into people. It's this intense desire that drives you to action, to shepherding care for people, to investing yourself into the lives of people. To the true elder, ministry is not drudgery characteristically or burdensome or coerced, but it is voluntary. It is voluntary. You desire the work and you aspire to it. You, it. The testimony of your life bears witness to the fact that you want to pursue people. One pastor once told me this, that when looking for potential elders, if a man is not an elder, when not an elder, he ought never to become an elder. Think about it. If a man is not an elder, when not an elder, he ought never to become an elder. What did he mean? That if he's not functioning as an elder, when he doesn't have an office, then what is going to change if you give him a title? He doesn't have anything compelling him internally to pursue shepherding care for people. So there must be a desire that drives the external stretching forth and grasping of this office through the care of people. Sure, he may struggle and be discouraged. I've had those times. But pursuing people for the purpose of helping them grow by means of God's word and prayer is the general direction and pattern of the true godly qualified elder. This is what patterns his life. This man is known by the church, if you want to put it this way, as a shepherd. We don't have to defend, in most cases, his his shepherding abilities or his shepherd's heart because people can bear witness to that. And that's why, beloved, when in a few weeks, when we ask you to put forward names of, of men that you think should be considered for eldership or deacons, but in the case of elders, we're not asking you to put forward your, your, your favorite guy. Nice guys. Nice guys who have done nice things for you in the past. Or nice guys that you know, you like their mentality, and, and they're going to promote your favorite issues or ideas in the church. That's not what we're asking for. What we're asking for is the names of men that you see who have a passion for the Word of God and prayer and who evidence in their life a call, character, and gifting as, as men who want to shepherd the church of God. 
They love the church. They're invested into the church. They're discipling individuals, whether at a high capacity or in baby steps, given their time constraints. They are men who are invested into people, especially men. Those are the kind of individuals we want to hear about. And if it's a legitimate candidate, there should be 10, 15, 20 names, 20 um, uh, um, people putting forward that name. Not just one who recognizes that man that way. Finally, Finally, and this will transition us to next week. It is leadership according to character. It is leadership according to character. A man can have the sense of call, have a desire, even be competent to teach, but still not be character qualified. He must have the character uh, pattern, pattern in his life, evident of verses 6 through 9 in First Timothy chapter 3. And the problem, of course, is that many churches focus on a man's gifting, as I said, his abilities, his talents, his experiences, his personality, his education, even his strong desire to lead. But all of these things must be checked by the man's character. Character is what drives. These are sobering truths, beloved. Important truths concerning the importance of godly, godly leaders in the church. For us as shepherds, beginning with me, the call as I've studied this is I need to be faithful to the call of God upon my own life and be relying upon His grace and be a godly man in private so that I could, I could be an example to you by the grace of God, not of perfection, but as a man who is growing and is progressing in his own faith. And for all of us as elders, that is the case as well. That we have to be on the forefront of investing ourselves into people. So faithfulness for shepherds. For any of you future shepherds who maybe sense that, that, that maybe God is calling you to that in the future, but you just don't know. Consider the, the serious but joyful and fulfilling task of shepherding God's people. Be deep in God's word. Be devoted to God. Cultivate a heart for God and, and a heart for the church of God. And be faithful in your service and the little things that God may entrust you to more later on. Amen? For those of you who maybe future shepherds in the church. Unless you think that there's no application for you, church. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 says this to you as a church, as a flock. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls. And listen to this. As those who will give an account let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. So for the rest of the flock, if, if this is the high call of godly qualified leaders in the church, then you are responsible before Christ, the Lord of the church, to obey your leaders, to submit to your leaders. Not to put leaders up on a pedestal, not as idols of worship, as men who are to be perfect. No. But as men who are charged by the Lord to keep watch over your souls. We will give an account, beloved, for your soul. And so when in doubt, when questions arise, and you need to ask those questions, and you still don't disagree, unless it's an issue of clear biblical violation, upon which time you should obey Jesus and his word, not an elder, then you should submit yourself to your leaders and defer and be a source of, of unity in the church and not a source of division and schism in the church. 
leading other sheep astray because of your complaining and grumbling. Submit to your leaders as those who will give an account, as those who uh, who, who, um, watch over your soul. So Paul says to Titus, Titus, you want to establish these churches? At the top of that list, you must appoint elders in every city as I directed you, as I commanded you. This is absolutely necessary and vital for these churches. And in the next couple of Sundays, we're going to see the Christ-like character of elders. Okay? Let me pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, oh Lord, these are sobering, serious things. But we thank you that your word is clear. That your word is a divine blueprint for how we should lead in your church. For the type of character that elders ought to have. Lord, please help us to be people who are loving your word and walking in obedience to it. Even as it pertains to being faithful elders in this church. For future elders, I pray that you would help men within this church to arise. And to, Lord, be equipped and discipled and trained up to be men who will lead your people out of love for you and love for them. And for all of us as a church, I pray that we might remember that ultimately it is the chief shepherd who is the head of the church and that he leads and directs his church through his word, by your spirit, and through godly qualified men. Help us to be submissive people, to cultivate a heart of humility in the way that we treat one another, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.